Today's episode is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is a new lingerie brand that uses more specific measurements to create better-fitting bras. Test out a bra for free for 30 days before deciding if it's right for you. Join the Try Before You Buy program now at thirdlove.com vulture. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're joined by Fargo showrunner Noah Hawley to talk season three, why Ewan McGregor is playing two roles, and his upcoming X-Men series, Legion. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. A few weeks ago, Matt Zoller Seitz and I sat down with Noah Hawley at the Vulture offices, and this is our conversation. Well, hi, Noah. Hi there. Thank you so much for being with us. Of course, really my excited. pleasure. Um, why don't we start by talking about Fargo? Since yes. I know you have a lot going on right now, but a little but busy. <laughs> but, but Fargo is a good place to start. Yeah, definitely. So you didn't you, you didn't take my suggestion. It's not set in the 14th century. The no, season. nor is it set on the the space station Fargo 2555. <laughs> although I did flirt with that idea. Uh, but no, I mean, but it, what's fun about the show is you could set it in the old settler days or set it in the future in some level. It's as long as you can land it. I don't know if you could land 10 hours of it, but maybe a little cutaway, right? um, you know, could be interesting. But it just has to have those Fargo qualities, I guess. How did you land on 2010 for the new, the Uh, third season? I just, I felt like I wanted it to be more contemporary. I didn't really want to jump to another period to say just do a, a period piece for the sake of doing a period piece and and then I I got interested in this idea you know there's always this sense of danger and threat that goes on and I thought well wouldn't it be interesting if Minnesota nice itself is kind of under threat this idea that we're in this modern world right and that that region which was sort of so isolating for so long and you know Joel and Ethan Cohen described it as Siberia with family restaurants and and <laughs> and you know that sense that that this overly friendly sense of community built up by these very isolated people and and that there's this Lutheran humbleness that keeps people from both talking about their own feelings and also asking about yours and what does that do in this modern age where everyone takes pictures of their food and they and they they share every thought they ever had in real time and you know how does that what happens to Minnesota nice when you start to when people start interacting with screens right. instead of each other so yeah right. the, the soundbite yeah. that's been going around is it'll focus on our selfie obsessed culture yeah, I mean I, that a little how? goes a long way I think it's got to be subtler than yeah. that you know but but um but I do find there's that that's interesting to me and in, in just in terms of you know this character you know our our law enforcement official one of them this year being someone who's who's sort of more isolated and and not into this social you know this f- sort of fake community um and how she has to kind of navigate with a 10-year-old son and, and all those things. Again, you know, it, it begins to seem like a bad episode of Parenthood, but it's not meant to be, 
like that, you know. So can I can I go back to something you mentioned earlier? This idea of there being a fa- Fargo elements, right, or a Fargo feeling. Yeah, and and of course, being a Coen Brothers fan, my first thought of that is that Barton Fink feeling. Exactly. I got a hundred writers yeah. and give me that Barton Fink feeling. Yeah, in five seconds, I could walk out in the street and give you that Barton <laughs> Fink feeling. Well, what does that mean? I mean, I know it's a mysterious, intuitive thing, but do you have a sense of what that means? Like, what is not? What is Fargo? What is not Fargo? Uh, let's see. That's, I mean, again, it is an instinctual process. I think that the, there, it has to do with the balance of, you know, the understatement of drama and comedy and violence. And, and there is a truthiness that's required, you know, because it's a fake true story. And, and so, you know, in my mind, there's, there's always a lot of moving pieces on a collision course. And because there are so many you never really know, can predict exactly which ones are going to collide, which gives it a sort of unpredictability, which I think is important. And then, you know, the idea of basically decent people who are probably in over their head. Um, you know, there are a lot of sort of elements that, you know, if you saw how the sausage was made, might not make the sausage so great. But, but um, you know, it is this weird state of mind, you know. And when I first pitched FX... This idea, they wanted a TV series, and I said, no, nah, it's not a series because what made the movie so powerful is at the end of it, you knew tomorrow was going to be a normal day for her. And if she woke up and got another crazy Coen Brothers case, it wouldn't, you couldn't call it a true story anymore, and it'd begin to feel a little ridiculous. So, um, you know, so it needs to have that balance where it feels true because there's a certain randomness to it, and, and um, you know... It's not a whodunit, right? You you meet the criminals before the crime is committed, and then only when the crime is committed do you meet the law enforcement official. I mean, there are certain rules to it on some level. You know, because I think what made that movie so interesting was that it was you took this framework of a crime story and you introduced this very original element into it was was this individual, you know, and these individuals, and you thought, well, they're criminals and they're committing crimes but they're not like other criminals we've seen and here's a cop who's solving the crime but she's not like other cops that we've seen and and so you they're know they're sort of ordinary in their way like yeah. i don't mean boring but i mean like in the sense that they could exist in this world yeah and there's always that you know the so on some level to to write to that is always about underwriting on some on some level i mean it's you know the example that that I'll give is, you know, the last scene of the first season, which is basically Molly gets a phone call that that um, that Lester's dead and she goes in and, and you know, sees her, you know, Gus and, and Greta, the, the stepdaughter. And, and, you know, basically it's like it's over and, you know, he's going to get a medal and she gets to be chief. And, you know, John Langraff, who runs FX, called me the day we were shooting it and he said... He said, it's a good scene on paper. I know that the last scene of the movie was sublime, and I don't know if this is that yet. So I just wanted to have a conversation. And I said, well, I think that it's, I think let us shoot it, and I'll cut it together tomorrow, and I'll show it to you, and, and then we'll decide. You know, and then I went to set and, and, and shot it and, and did it as a wonder, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on on some level, because I knew that, what makes something sublime is its simplicity, I feel like. And mm-hmm. so to just see her get the call and follow her in, and then it becomes a three-shot as they're sitting on the sofa and they're watching Deal or No Deal, which I decided for some reason was the only thing they could be watching. And and um, and um, 
And it's just very simple, and it's got the space in it that it has. And then I knew that it was the one time in this in the season that I was going to use the original Carter Burwell theme, and I didn't say that to him because why would you ruin that discovery, you know? And, right. And so, you know, I cut it together and, and showed it to him, and, and everyone was happy. But there was this sense of simplicity, which I think you have to write to. There was a moment in the second season in that first hour where – you know, Patrick Wilson comes home from having seen the the Waffle Hut and, and you know, um, Kristen Milioti's up waiting for him doing the dishes and they have this moment where his daughter made him an ashtray and, and that was it. The scene was not very complicated and then Patrick brought this emotion to it, which I hadn't predicted. But Yeah, that's a strong scene. Yeah, and, and it, you know, it was it's very fi- sad. Yeah, it was fine on paper, you know, but, but you had to... You got to leave room for the for the characters, for the actors to to do things, and so there is that element to it, which is a simplicity. Like you don't you don't want to just have a lot of bells and whistles and a lot of weirdos, and you know, I mean, there's a certain point at which let's not forget how beautiful the simple simple people washing dishes can be. You know, you've got a you've got a strong genre element, which is always really important on shows like this, particularly cable shows. I know networks prefer it. They prefer to have, you know, there's science fiction, there's horror, there's a crime element, something like that to right. kind of pull people in if they're not particularly inclined to watch a show for the characters, the atmosphere, and so forth. Yeah. But you do have the characters, the atmosphere, and so forth. And you've got this sort of high-low split now where you've got uh, funny, brutal, nasty people, but also these quiet domestic scenes that you talk about and also these kind of lyrical, almost kind of art house cinema moments. Right. How do you feel when people come up to you and want to talk about the show purely in terms of the crime element or purely in terms of the violence, the action, and so forth? Do you feel like, I wish you were asking me about that other stuff? or No, I mean, I, I feel like I'm not a snob about that stuff. Yeah. I mean... Because I, I know other cre- uh, other creators and showrunners have had issues with that. I remember David yeah. Simon in particular seems to never have quite reconciled himself with the fact that some people do watch The Wire because Omar is a badass. Right. No, it's true, and you know my feeling has always been if you entertain people, they give you permission to do more, you know, on a thematic or character level, and and but you know I fully expect that there are some people who watch Fargo just because it's entertaining and and either it's funny or or suspenseful, etc. But you know it's what I would call a second watch show, which is you know because it's hopefully unpredictable. There is a moment where you want to go back. Now that you know how it ends, you want to go back and watch it again to sort of see the inevitability of, of the moves, you know. And and so that's, you know, so people want any element that people want to talk about. But I do feel like what I try to do with the violence is, is, to, is to, I never want the violence to be fun, you know what I mean? So there's this moment in the first year where, where Billy Bob sets up the poor Don Chump you know character and 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 ties him up and then fires off some rounds and the SWAT team comes it's the original swatting you know right. <laughs> and and right. at first you think oh it's kind of funny here's Malvo who we love as a kind of trickster character and he Joker-esque. creates this thing right but then as it escalates as you realize that, that this guy is doomed like it starts to sicken you a little bit i think and you know i pull all the sound out and this you know sort of classical music comes in and it, it has it goes from comedy to tragedy in a moment that I think 
if I do it right, makes the audience sort of go, I was excited about this and now I don't feel so great about it. And, and maybe that's what violence is. You know, it's a thing where you think you want to see it and then it's, as it is in the Coen Brothers movies, I mean, you know, when he shoots that state cop in Fargo and the blood jets out of the guy's head and Steve Buscemi's like, whoa, daddy. Like, it's that moment is really, really yeah. striking. Yeah, it makes you engage with it much more emotionally. Yeah. And I, Fargo has, it's such a, the seasons are such a slow build and then it has this kind of incredible payoff. How do you, how do you, when you're writing it, just how do you break it down episode by episode in terms of like, here's when I'm going to have my big dramatic moment, right? Where to kind of place those in this 10 episode run. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's good to try to be unexpected with it. Like you wouldn't expect that episode four would be a huge episode necessarily, you know, and, and that it's not because again, there's so many moving parts on a collision course. Um, you know, sometimes those moments come in an unpredictable ways. I mean, the great example from, Breaking Bad is that one minute episode, you know, with the two guys come for Hank in the parking lot, you know, which is like, I don't think that was a penultimate episode or anything. It was just sort of happened in the middle of the season. And, and uh, um, you know, so a lot of it is it's about weaving those moving pieces together. And obviously, you know, there are some things procedurally you need to you need to do. When did the Gerhards learn about, um, you know, Peggy and Ed and who do they send and you know, if you send the kid with multiple sclerosis to kill Jesse Plemons, you then your sympathies again with the with violence. It's harder to just root for Jesse because you're thinking, I don't know, this kid is so sweet and he's in the wrong place, you know, and he did the right. wrong thing and all of that. So, but you know, both years I like to take a turn around the seventh or eighth episode. We did the one year jump in the first year, and then Peggy and Ed hit the road in the second year, and so. Right when the show's going to settle into, you know, now you've watched five or six, and you know the rhythms of the show, and you know it can't ramp up too fast because you got to get to the ending. The show does something different, and there's no rut. You're not stuck in a rut at any point. It just takes a turn. I interviewed um, Peter Gould of um, Better Call Saul. Yeah. And some of the actors who were on that show, and uh, we talked in some detail about the idea of... Um, storytellers having to have a plan and that's something that you see in the comment sections of reviews a lot when when a show is not making most of the viewers happy they say it's clear to me that they don't have a plan right and i always wonder how much of a plan do you have because i know that it varies from show to show and uh, david chase told me that barring sudden sort of extra dramatic developments like nancy marchand getting ill or you know an actor being unable to remember their lines and having to be written out you know, that these things happen, that right. he liked to go in with a, a fairly complete map for an entire season yeah. before he would shoot. But Breaking Bad, on the other hand, not only were they uh, unafraid to sort of suddenly change directions, there was a point where they started to treat it as a challenge. Like the example that you mentioned, One Minute, uh, apparently the cousins were supposed to be the main bad guys all throughout that season. And at a certain point, they realized these guys are really not doing it for us. We right. need to bring in Gus Fring. Right. Because he's simply more interesting than these kind of monotonous killers. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why, I mean, maybe part of the reason why that's such a surprising, exciting episode for me and apparently for you is that they didn't see it coming either. Right. And, like, when do you make a decision to change course? Do you make a plan and stick to it? Do you make part of a plan and then sort of wing it? Have you ever gotten in a place where you say, holy shit, this brilliant thing that I thought I was going to do that was going to be so great is just not working. What am I going to do that's not that? Yeah, you know, we 
we've been able more than most um, shows to separate the writing from the production. So certainly that first year I'd written eight of the ten scripts before we went to camera, and the second year I think we'd I'd written six of the ten, but we had all ten outlines, you know, so so everything was broken, and, and it felt important to me in terms of setting up that the example I'll give is, you know, I knew in that first year that Lester was going to use a bear trap. So in that first episode, there's that bear trap on the wall in the garage, and I show you, sure, I show you a machine gun to put into your head, well, you show a gun in the first act, you got to fire it in the third act, right? But what I was really showing you (laughs) was the bear trap on the wall, and every time we were in that garage, you were seeing it. Um, But if I didn't know the end, I couldn't set that stuff up as well. So, you know, my feeling is you, you know, and again, because it needs to feel accidental on some level, it has to be really well planned out on another (laughs) level, which which is, you know, you know, that idea that, Wrench and Numbers were going to ambush Malvo in that sixth hour. Just as he's in the, in the middle of going to collect his money, his story is impacted. The consequences of his actions catch up with him. And then he never – that story's dead. It, you know, Oliver Platt is just forgotten. You know it's, what I mean? It's, it's funny that you mentioned the bear trap and the machine gun because one of the examples Peter Gould gave of the semi-improvised style of yeah. writing on Breaking Bad was the machine gun in Walt's trunk in season six. Oh, right. And he said that they – they wrote that not knowing how they were going to use the machine right. gun at the end. And he said fairly quickly into production on, on the first half of season six, one of the things I kept hearing in the writer's room was, that would be a great idea if it wasn't for that damn machine gun in the trunk. Yeah, yeah. no, it's tough. It's, uh, but you want, you want to be able to work it out is my feeling. And then, you know, both years I stuck to those, to those outlines and, and, you know, there was one moment in the last hour of the first year where, I, you know, I, I gave Billy the script and he had a couple of thoughts. Originally, you know, Malvo was going to impersonate an FBI agent and get close to these guys. And Billy quite rightly said, you know, it's the one time where, where what we've seen him doing it and what he ends up doing are the same. There's no, like, why is he doing that moment? And plus, it feels like a lot of work to do to just get close to those those guys. And I thought he was right, and so I went back and had him, you know, go to the used car lot and take the car for a test drive and send the guy, and it seemed a little more um, creative on that level. Um, but, you know, we had been planning from early on the motel, you know, for the second year. We wanted a big shootout where a UFO shows up, <laughs> and, you know, the gag was it would happen earlier, and everyone would they'd be shoot, you know, in the shootout, and the UFO would show up, and everyone would just go, all right, we'll see you later. We're just going to go home now. Like, you know, it's like literally going to stop the action in its tracks, and that's not how we ended up doing it. But, you know, all those set pieces are, you know, they take planning. Today's episode is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is a new lingerie brand that uses a more tailored measuring system to create better-fitting bras. Shopping for bras can be a huge pain, not to mention the search to find out what your true bra size even is. Third Love offers a try-before-you-buy program where you can test out a bra for free for 30 days before deciding if it's right for you. All you have to do is pay for shipping. You can take the tags off, wear it, and wash it to really try it out. If you love it, keep it, and they'll charge your card. If you don't, send it back for free, and your card will not be charged. Don't know your size? An online fit specialist will help you find the perfect fit. Go to thirdlove.com vulture to get started. So 
so what point are you at right now for the in your season three process yeah i've written the first uh episode we've broken the whole season basically and and are working the outlines through um as you heard we cast ewan mcgregor um yeah to play uh to play brothers is the makeup for each brother going to be dramatically different i think to some degree <laughs> yeah. yeah i think you know one brother gets to look like ewan mcgregor and then the <laughs> other one will look like fatter balder ewan mcgregor <laughs> probably um How- have you thought about how it's going to work filming wise at all? Or? No, I had, you know, when I first, when I met with you and I didn't, I hadn't realized that he had, you know, he has this Jesus movie coming right. out where he plays Jesus, but also Satan who comes <laughs> to talk to Jesus and is oh. literally doing it. So when I met with him, he said, oh, I just, you know, I did this on some level and, and, you know, he actually had his stunt guy, his body double do the scenes with him because the guy was, had been working with him for a while. And then, you know, you could sort of get on the one side or the other and film it. I mean, look, it's going to be a process and you need to give yourself more time in production just mm-hmm. just to think about shooting that scene an extra whatever 10 times and You're going to talk to David Fincher or Oh yeah, Spike or, Jones or Tom Hardy who just yeah. did it for <laughs> Yeah, there, I mean There is a precedent for this and Yeah, yeah, I think I think so and and you know, the hardest thing is if you want them to interact with each other, et cetera, right. it becomes harder. But every, everything's so much easier than it used to be in terms of the visual effects and face replacement, et cetera. So we'll figure it out. That's not the part that's worrying me right now, I <laughs> right. guess. So. What is the part that's worrying I've you? I've got nine more episodes to write, <laughs> et cetera. Are, are you writing how, – how many have you decided to write this season? Uh, like yourself versus – Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, – I mean, I guess I wrote a – I wrote or co-wrote what seven of them six or seven of them last year it'll probably be about the same um you know it's it's a voice it's a specific voice and you know i saw vince gilligan recently at this at this thing and you know he famously said if you stick with your writers it seems hard at first to get people to really learn the show and write the show but you know, he's a firm believer in, like, you just stick with people and train them, and then they'll, they'll reward you for it in the end. I think it's a little bit harder when you keep changing what the show is on some level, right. you know, because you're always having to go. It's year one of this show, and it has a similar voice, but these characters are not the same characters. They don't speak the same way, et cetera. So, that is really hard. Yeah. You seem to have committed to this idea of uh, building a world. Building a world, and and it's you know maybe more geographically expansive than people might have expected it to be, but it's still it's a particular part of the country, yeah. particular slice of that world. There's usually a crime element of some kind, and uh, I wonder if you worry at all that you might eventually run into the uh, kind of Star Trek phenomenon where you've got so much accumulated backstory and so much established history that it becomes harder to have freedom. Right. Or we can't do this because it would inflict, we would conflict with this story that we told in season three or season right. five or whatever. Well, I guess that's assuming there are going to be more than three years of it or more than, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Every, every time I'm in the middle of one, I go, I don't know if there's, I mean, I don't know if there's another one. I know that, you know, big corporations don't usually do a mic drop a, after a success um, but I do – one of the things I really respect about John Langreff and FX is, you know, we did the first one and it was a huge success. And, you know, we wouldn't have done another unless we both felt like we could equal it or top it. And it was the same with, with this one. It's – you know, the bar is very high and, and you know, I'm, I'm not a – I don't – 
think there has to be 10 years of something, you know, to make it great. I, I feel like um, what is the zeitgeist of, you know, of a show on some level, right? And if and if I – if usually you get, what, five seasons in five years. I'll probably have three seasons in five years given that, you know, they're pushing – the first one was 16 months between seasons and this one will be 18 or, you know, 20 months between seasons. So, you know, at that point, I I don't know. I mean, it's gotta, it's gotta work. But the other thing is maybe, maybe then you go, okay, great. We had three, those came relatively easily. Um, and do the Louis CK thing and say, Hey, it's four years later. I have another one. And then you just make that if it is an anthology or a limited series in that way, you can eventize it, as they say, and, and you know, um, not stick to that TV schedule. Could you ever imagine going back to broadcast TV after working in this kind of more flexible, creative environment? No. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't think so. It's, um, you know, there's only one note you ever get in broadcast, and that's clarity, right? You only really ever get the clarity note, and they'll sacrifice everything for clarity. They'll what does clarity mean at a broadcast network? Uh, it means anything that you're trying to say, you both have to see happen, say out loud as it's happening, and then talk about it after it happens, you know? So, <laughs> no like, nuance. half of a broadcast show, in my experience, is things happening, and the other half is people talking about how they feel about the things that happened. And, mm-hmm. and so there's this sense of constantly everyone's saying their subtext out loud, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're, they're, you know it's, it's the, that, that pilot like, Joe, you're my brother, Dialogue, you know what I mean? Which is like we got to tell the audience that this is your brother, right? And right. as opposed to saying, you know, you're you're together. I haven't laughed this hard since the time that we were together at that picnic <laughs> in 1987, and Ma fell in the lake. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine, and and um, you know, for me, it's really about the creative freedom, and and you know, the playing with structure is really important to me, and and clarity is not. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer that, that it's a very sophisticated audience. And, you know, I mean, Landgraf himself said, you know, famously at the TCAs, he's like, I'd rather make something great for some people than something good for everybody. And, and I, I would have to agree. And you're also working on a number of other shows with FX. You've, Apparently you've got the, am, yes. <laughs> the um, X-Men series Legion. Yes. Where are you at with, with that right now? Uh, well, uh, that I think the announcement's going out today. We're going to make a few more of those. We're going to make mm. a first season of that. That's very exciting. Um, I don't know when the release has gone out, so you <laughs> might be embargoed before you can say it. Okay. But but I no got problem. that call today, and it should the release should come out today. How how closely have you worked with Jeff Loeb, the head of Marvel TV, on that? Yeah, I've I've worked pretty closely with him. I mean, there it's the one case where they're not the lead studio. FX Studios is the lead studio, so on some level, I deal primarily with FX, and then a lot of the notes sometimes are filtered through. FX, but but um, yeah, I've spent some time with Jeff. Yeah. yeah, and in terms of adapting it from the comic series it's based on, how closely are you hewing to that? Well, I would say not. You know, I mean, at the risk of angering the, the fanboys, <laughs> I, I think in you know, in that Fargo is an homage to the movie on some level, since it's not a literal translation. There are no characters from the movie. And it doesn't tell the story of the movie, so how is it an adaptation of the movie? It's a similar dynamic. I like the idea of this character, and, you know, I started, honestly, 
when FX um, asked me if I'd be interested in this to sort of, you know, I, I uh, reached out to Simon Kinberg, who's an executive producer on it and a writer and producer of, of you know, the X-Men movies and Fantastic Four and a lot of, you know, The Martian, a lot of stuff. And I just started talking to him, you know, as two writers about, well, what's it, what's a good show? What's the interesting show? And then what's the character, you know? So um, there was a dynamic that I really liked and then, you know, found my way to this character. And I, I really was attracted to the idea that here, here was a character of, of David Holler, who's this, this character, Legion, who is diagnosed as schizophrenic or he has these abilities, you know, which was the balance in my head. So he's a character who doesn't really know what's real and what's not real, which, again, the structure should reflect the content. Um, I like that idea that for the audience it becomes, there is a surreal quality to it. Um, And that I figured that, you know, the other Marvel properties have all the running and kicking down, like I don't Mm -hmm. need to worry about that. I think what's more interesting is almost on a existential level like what is it like to to be someone who is who has these extra human abilities not in a kind of you know cliche or campy way but you know what is it like to hear voices and see things and you're not sure everyone's telling you they're not real but maybe they are real and and uh um you know and then there's a love story at the heart of it as well that i think is really driving this what would make you want to step into this world of comic book adaptations given how contentious it can be for for a writer, producer, director, or anything. You know, there's a sense yeah. in which these things are community, pro- they're considered almost community property, right. and if you don't do it exactly the way somebody thinks you ought to do it, yeah. you're, you're Satan. <laughs> well, I'm going to do it the way no one thinks I should do it, probably. So, so. it'll be double Satan. Probably. Squared. Um, <laughs> well, Here's the thing. This conversation actually started right around when I was wrapping the first season of Fargo. And then um, the process of, you know, because Marvel is more of a passive, you know, 20th Century Fox has licensed the X-Men, the rights to the X-Men. And so if they want to make a show, they can make a show. They just have to work out a deal with with Marvel. And and, uh, it just took a while, you know. So, So literally... We went from we should do this to we're doing it was over a year, during which time all the Netflix shows came out. You know, when I started in on this path, it wasn't as I think there was just Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. There wasn't all of this other stuff. So it's almost like um, this whole evolution of angry. So it's um, like now it's like 1960 and you're making a Western. Right. Exactly. (laughs) But so I'm making a very different Western. But that was always my plan to begin with, you know. I mean, the two-hour movies, obviously, they or three-hour movies, whatever they are, they, you know, they're plot-driven, dr- you know, um, as as the shows tend to be. Um, and this is more character. It's not a information delivery device. It's sort of an experience delivery device, and and uh, so I don't know. I mean, I you know, it's the same thing with Fargo. I thought this is a terrible idea. No one's going to watch this, and then we did pretty well. So we'll see. Uh, um, I don't know. I, I I I hope that people want something unexpected and something good. And to the degree to which you do something completely different, then maybe that is easier to accept than something where you take, say, you know, the the Dark Phoenix story or Days of Future Past and you change it. 
You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You take you take a comic book story, a story from the books, and you change it to something else. You know, when they that's I think could be more anger angering than than to just tell a different story with the same character. I'm hoping Knockwood. I had a conversation just this morning with a number of people who were uh, talking about fan fiction, fan fiction, and the idea that fan fiction is disrespected. And yet, if you make a television show that sort of jumps off from Fargo, if you make The Force Awakens or Creed, right. that's respectable. Right. Where, where does fan fiction and, and something else begin, or is there no difference? I mean, how do you feel about this? Like, there is a sense in which it, it seems like everybody thinks of themselves as, or wants to be, or even is, a creator now. Yeah, and is one form necessarily more valid than the other? No, it's just the third-party validation, you know. It's it's um, obviously what Fifty Shades of Grey came out of fan fiction and became this huge phenomenon. Um, you know, I, I think these characters, once they're created, kind of belong to everybody. And, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have no problem with people kind of taking this stuff stuff on if they if they if they want to live in this world that I've created or with these characters uh, in their own time I mean that's very flattering um but you know we we do have as whatever 400 plus shows now and and for for the viewers who are not those those creators they need some kind of val- third party validation to say this one's worth my time you know whether it's a review or or that it's brought to you by uh, you know a channel you trust FX or HBO or something and and then the really great ones the things that are created you know in somebody's basement if they're great they'll find an audience but but um, you know it's it's a process to 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 get good enough at making things that that people you know want to spend their time with them. Mm. And so you're also working on Cat's Cradle, is that uh-huh. correct? I am, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is an adaptation of the curtain. It would be yeah. an adaptation of the book. And, and um, you know, I had a couple of writers for a couple of weeks just sort of come in to help me think out loud about, well, how long is the story and what's the basic shape of it, et cetera. Um, so it's probably somewhere in six to eight hours, I think, is what it would be. Uh, and I need to sit down and write a script, along with all the other scripts I need yeah. to sit down and write. Um, but it's very, um, you know, it would be a period version. It would be, you know, there's no way to modernize it. Or modernizing it isn't really interesting to me on some level. Um, and... Uh, you know, it would follow those all those characters from the book, and and you know, um, and just sort of expand in the way that that you know, when you have six or eight hours to expand on a on a novel, you know, you can you you know, you realize in a novel you can jump very, you can move through time at an escalated pace. You can just sort of pick up, and then you know, you start in a new place, and you can fill in the backstory of where you were. So you know, when you read. The novel *Cat's Cradle*, which is one of my favorite books, you, you know, when you read it again with the idea of adapting it, you're like, "Oh, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know how they got from this point to that point, or how are we going to add all these things up?" So it's been really fun to play with. And again, like the Coens, it's a very unique voice. So. In, the, in the last fifteen or twenty years, uh, television shows have become so much more varied and adventurous in the way that they tell stories. The length of a season, the length of an episode, the ju- the structure of an episode. Yeah. You can jump back and forth through time, and you do now. Yeah. Um, given all of this, uh, why why do you want to write a novel? 
<laughs> you know, like what yeah. is an, what is writing a novel? What is writing fiction on the page, which is you and the page give you that you can't get from these increasing elaborate productions where you get notes, but you're not handcuffed. Right. You know, you do have a lot of freedom here. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, and you know the the again with FX, it's like they they have strong points of view, but at the end of the day, it, you know, it's my decision to make. So you know. Uh, and a lot of the times, especially when you're trying to do something new, the only way to really show you that it works is to show you that it works. Like a script is not a show. It's, you know, it's like, no, 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 this will be great. And you'll see, again, I'll put the Carter Burwell music with it. I'll shoot it as a one like until you see it and you're experiencing it emotionally like that, you can't really explain it. Um, so, you know, but a novel, look, a novel is 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 a relationship you know when you read a book uh, you know the writer's done half the work and you're doing half the work you're providing the imagination the words are turning into pictures in your mind like there's an active relationship that's going on and I've tried with Fargo and and the other work to sort of create that in in a more passive medium you know by making it more unpredictable by you know giving you open-ended um, th- thematic story pieces why is there a UFO what is the Ronald Reagan thing like all of that it, it sort of forces the audience to, to not just receive the show but they it engages their imagination but there's still nothing like a book um, to really feel make you feel like you've disappeared into a world and, and, and you know in a book you can really you can talk about ideas and, and, and themes you know and characters in, in a in a deeper way than you can even on on the screen um you know and it's amazing how the flexible the human mind is in terms of like you know jumping into a backstory or an aside or i mean vana gets a great example there's it's not a linear story by any means but somehow your brain is keeping it moving in one direction even though the story is taking you in all these different directions you jump back and forth in time in after the fall and you have some kind before of pre- the fall before sorry. the fall sorry uh-huh. i always want to say that because of um uh, arthur miller right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no this was before arthur miller yeah <laughs> and before. just for listeners before the fall is Noah noah holly's latest novel yes fifth novel out uh, on sale uh, today i suppose were you thinking of vonnegut at all as you were writing it no although i you know i mean there is a, a brilliant simplicity to Kurt Vonnegut in his moral certain, you know, there's a sense of morality that, that's almost childlike in a way, um, in, in a lot of his books. That's very simple. It's like, you know, I mean, that I, that I think is present in this book a little bit too, which is like, don't be a bully, you know? And, and it's, it, it's not more complicated than that. You know, it's like, you gotta be, you gotta be nice to things that are weaker than you and, 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 and and not gang up on them and and um but you know Vonnegut uh, there are a lot of writers who you know I mean Vonnegut his voice is so unique and what he did structurally and and the way he played with the form was so in- inspirational on some level when I was starting out as a novelist I think it's important you know I mean there's this gravitational pull towards almost the Dickensian you know, David Foster Wallace, immersive, you know, ride where you realize, well, you know, maybe maybe we can be a little more playful than that. And, and that playfulness, I think the audience and the readers appreciate. There's also, it's also a book that's very, very easy to picture as a, as a, a miniseries. 
Yeah. You know, a Noah, a Noah Hawley kind of production. And, and there's even that the scene where he's watching Jack LaLanne sw- yeah. swim from Alcatraz. Uh-huh. Yeah. It feels like an origin story or something that could be right. a flashback. And, like, and I'm not saying, you know, in another time, this right. would be a pejorative thing to say that I could see this as a television show. Right. But I don't think it means that anymore because now so much television show, so many television shows feel more like literary fiction. Right. Yeah, there is that serialized quality n- these days that, that you used to find in, in, in those old serials. Um, you know, it was Sony optioned it as a movie, and, and um, I'm interested to, to play with the two-hour format and, and see can you, you know, can you be as creative in that space until, and still tell the story and make the audience feel like, you know, because the two-hour movie tends to be a plot de- delivery device. It tends to you tend to have to introduce all the characters, say what the goal is, and then you know get there with a setback, right? And then, but that's not really how life is, or what a story necessarily wants to be. And I always like when there's a lot of moving pieces, etc. So this, you know, is is there a more economical way to to do that version? Um, and that's uh, I don't know. I'll discover. I'll let you know. I'm, I I always try to ask anybody who is you know the heart of what they do is writing what are your habits what is your process do you write in longhand do you type on a typewriter do you do it all electronically do you dictate into your phone what do you do no the dictation process is different it's a different part of your brain to say something out loud than it is to to write it i've tried that and it just doesn't um and it's just different um i tend to type into a computer i you know i sort of see myself as a as a first draft writer so you know, when I sit down to write something, the first draft is usually pretty close to the the end draft. I mean, you know, th- there'll be some tweaks um, along the way, but but it's not like I'll go twenty pages and then throw it out and start again. Usually, it's it's uh, you know, which I think is helpful, certainly in the TV business. To you got to write fast, and they'll you know someone will tell you, you you can rewrite this episode between 4 and 6 p.m. and so that's when you rewrite it you don't you, you know what i mean you yeah. can't wait for the muse to show up or anything and you know so i i've trained myself it's to write you know to not be precious about it at all so if i have to write on an airplane or or you know get up early to write or or write late like you just you got to sit down when 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 you have the time you have to be able to do it Thank you so much for joining Absolutely. us, Noah. This was, this was really fun. Awesome. I'd offer to help you move, but I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you are. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafit. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.